Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am covering in this audio, 1 Peter chapter 5, 1-14, through 14, that's the entire chapter. Our context is this, in chapter 4, the last part of the chapter, Peter talked about suffering as a Christian, the first part of chapter 4, he talked about suffering in the flesh, which is a related topic. At the last part of chapter 3, he talked about suffering for righteousness' sake, and in at the last part of chapter 3, and in the first part of chapter 3, he talked about suffering for righteousness' sake. So you see the theme of Peter's gospel here, Peter's letter here, is suffering. And so we start here in 1 Peter 5, 1, he mentions the sufferings of the Messiah again. Therefore, as a fellow elder and witness to the sufferings of the Messiah, and also a participant in the glory about to be revealed, I exhort the elders among you. Now, Peter calls himself an elder here. In 1 Peter 1.1, he calls himself an apostle. 1 Peter 1.1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So you see, an apostle can be an elder, and this is typical. One person can perform more than one office or more than one function. He was an apostle when he went out and evangelized, like, for example, when he went out to Joppa and to Cornelius' house. But he was an elder when he stayed home and led the church in Jerusalem. Now, the NIV Study Bible says Peter must have had a relationship with elders in a local church because he says, as a fellow elder, well, he could be, or it could be that he's talking to a bunch of bunch of elders and churches scattered all out through the Anatolian diaspora, the, the Jewish Christians to whom he was writing. We're going to see, actually, he was writing to the whole church because he says to the elders among you. So he was writing to, to all the brothers. But at any rate, Peter is an apostle and Peter is an elder. Now, the elders of the churches he was addressing would need encouraging in, in light of the persecution they were, were receiving, and Peter's trying to give it to them. Now, some people say that elder refers to the age of Peter, people, his fellow elders, fellow old people. Jameson, not Fawcett, and Brown says it refers to both his office and his age. And, you know, the word office is really not in the scriptures. That's a man-made term that we use to describe ministry gifts. So let's put it this way. Is Peter referring to his ministry gift or to his age? I believe he's referring to his ministry gift here, not his age, but we can't prove it one way or the other. At any rate, Peter shows great humility in identifying with the other elders in the body of Christ. He doesn't call himself the prince of the apostles or the vicar of Christ on earth, like some religious organizations I know. Here's what Adam Clark says about that, quote, Had he been what the popes of Rome say he was, the prince of the apostles and head of the church, and what they affect to be, mighty secular lords binding the kings of the earth in chains, and their nobles in fetters of iron, could he have spoken of himself as he here does? So if Peter was the first pope, would he have said, Your fellow elders? I don't think so. Peter says he was a witness of the sufferings of Christ. He saw all the events accompanying Jesus' crucifixion. He was there in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was arrested. He saw the crucifixion, probably, perhaps. It actually doesn't say so in the Gospels. But here's how you can deduce that. In John 19:26, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple he loved standing there, that was John, he said to his mother, woman, here's your son. Now, we see Peter and John together shortly thereafter. For example, that Sunday night, the resurrection Sunday night, they were together in the house there in Jerusalem. So we assume Peter saw the crucifixion too. So he's he's appealing to that as he's, as he's writing to his fellow Christians in the diaspora. He's saying, I saw him suffer. But once again, we have glory connected with suffering because when Peter mentions sufferings, not far behind does he mention glory. He's a participant in the glory about to be revealed. Now, when is this glory going to be revealed? You could say it's AD 70 when Jesus comes and wipes out Jerusalem, showing his majesty and his power, his judging power. Could be the glory revealed at the end of time, but notice it's the glory about to be revealed. That sounds like it's close by. So that makes me think it's AD 70. And he says, also a participant in the glory about to be revealed. When did Peter participate in that glory? whether it was 87 or the end of the world. When did he participate in it? Well, it was on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter was one of the three there that saw Jesus shining bright in all his glory. And that's the same glory that's going to be revealed at the return of Christ at the second coming, if that's when it is, or at 87, if that's when Peter was talking about. Now, notice here in verse 1, I mentioned this before, I'll mention it again. Peter says, I exhort the elders among you. He's writing to all the brothers in these churches. 
He's not just writing to the elders. So he says, I exhort the elders among you. Very non-hierarchical. Elders in the New Testament church were plural, not single. They were hierarchical of equal, equal authority. There was no first among, among equals. They were male. There were no women elders. And they were not paid a salary. You could give money to them, but you're not paid a salary. We go to verse 2, 1 Peter 5. Shepherd God's flock among you, Peter says, not overseeing out of compulsion, but freely, according to God's will, not for the money, but eagerly. Well, I just said they're not paid. Then why would they be serving for the money? Well, we'll get to that in just a minute. First of all, let's look at this verb shepherd. That's the Greek word from which we get pastor, which means to feed. So feed the flock, shepherd the flock. Now, you notice in the same verse 2 here, the shepherds oversee, not out of compulsion, but freely. Oversee, well, that's the Greek word episkopos, which means oversee, from which we get the English word bishop. And in verse 1, we've already mentioned elders, which is presbyteroi. So we have three different Greek words describing the same function. So in these two verses, you can prove that elders and pastors and overseers are exactly the same people. In English, bishops, of course, are soon to be hierarchical and high on top of other pastors. That's not the way the Greek has it. It's the same function, the same ministry gift. Easy to prove. You can also prove it by Acts 20 and go to verse 17 and also to verse 28. Look at those two verses. you got the same three words together referring to the group of elders slash pastors slash overseers at Miletus. As Paul stops there. These are the Ephesian elders, Ephesian overseers, Ephesian pastors, as Paul stops by there on his way back to Rome at the end of his third journey. All right, so Paul is talking to church leaders to shepherd God's flock, feed them, not overseeing out of compulsion. Now, John Gill makes an interesting point is that there is a little bit of ambiguity here, ambiguity here. Where's the compulsion? Is it the compulsion of the pastors driving their flock and putting the flock under compulsion, or is that pastors are feeling compulsions from other people to be a pastor. Why would they feel that way? Well, they don't have any money, and so they think, well, there's not enough money in this job, if I can put it that way. Or it could be, that, as John Gill puts, suggests that, or John Gill suggests maybe that the pastor's relatives and friends were pushing them to be a pastor, and they didn't want to. Well, obviously, you shouldn't do something you're not called to do. I don't know what the answer is. Either way, you shouldn't do it. Pastors should not drive their flock with a whip, and they shouldn't serve under compulsion. They should serve freely. I think it really refers to the pastor himself being driven out of compulsion, guilt, needs the money, whatever. Bad motives. He should do it not for the money, but eagerly. He should want to do it. Now, that word eagerly is interesting because it's sort of, it's sort of a balanced verse to the verse that says... In James 3.1, not many should become teachers, my brothers. Now, a teacher is, what does a teacher do? He elds and he rules, okay? Teacher's an elder. Well, not all teachers are elders, but all elders are teachers of some sort. And James says, not many should become teachers, my brothers, because you know that we will receive a stricter judgment. Well, that might be true, but Peter says, if you are going to be an elder, do it eagerly. Of course, don't do it for the prestige. Somebody calling you pastor looking up to you and thinking you're a big-shot religious person. Boy, I tell you, there's enough of that floating around. And if you ever see it, you need to gird up your loins and run like a rabbit away from that guy and don't pay him any attention. Now, these elders are supposed to be shepherds. Now, that's a common metaphor in the Scriptures. Let's look at what Jesus, how Jesus used it in John 10, verses 1 through 16. I assure you, anyone who doesn't enter the sheep pen by the door but climbs in some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. The doorkeeper opens it for him, and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought all his own outside, he goes ahead of them. The sheep follow him because they recognize his voice. It's a great metaphor. We recognize Jesus' voice and we follow him out and we don't just wander on our own and refuse to come back into the sheepfold, into the body of Christ when we run into a wolf on the outside. Jesus continues in verse 4, John 10, I am the good shepherd. I know my own sheep and they know me. As the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. And the elders should imitate Jesus. Paul said that, right? He says, imitate me even as I imitate Christ. An elder should imitate Jesus and be a good shepherd over his flock. The imagery of a shepherd is used also in Luke 15, verses 3 through 7. So he, Jesus, told them this parable. 
What man among you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them does not leave the ninety-nine in the open field and go after the lost one until he finds it? When he has found it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders, and coming home, he calls his friends and neighbors together, saying to them, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost sheep. So Jesus is our sheep. Elders, you need to be a shepherd of the sheep, just like Jesus was. Now, Peter says you shouldn't be an elder for money. Now, this brings up the touchy issue of paid clergy. Now, it just came up with me. Uh, I am getting ready to do a online teaching seminar. And I put out the, do it with a friend of mine, and I put out the literature about it, the email. And in it, I had my doctrinal statement. And in the doctrinal statement, I had a lot of details, one of which I didn't believe in paid clergy. Well, a pastor looked at that and said, got all bent out of shape and says, I'm not going to come to your seminar, even though we're not talking about paid clergy exactly, but it doesn't matter. That's a touchy subject. Well, let me tell you something. It's not hard to make the case that elders were not paid a salary. It is not hard at all. I'm going to do it now real quick. First, but before I do that, I do want to make point out that the Scripture does not, in an ironclad way, say that people should not give gifts of money to elders who labor hard at teaching. Nothing wrong with that. But there is a big difference between giving money to someone and paying them a salary. Because when you pay somebody a salary, you institutionalize that gift. It is no longer a gift. It's a job. That changes the relationship of the church and the pastor. And the pastor becomes a eunuch. He's scared to say anything that might offend the people that are giving him his money. And then he, pretty soon he's compromising the word of God. If you don't think that happens, you haven't lived very long in the, in the system church here in America or here anywhere for that matter. It's one thing I like about the church in China. Most of the pastors are not paid. All right, so you can give money to an elder, but salary, I don't think so. Let's look at the key verses used to advocate that. First Timothy 5.17, Paul says to Timothy, The elders who are good leaders are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Now, honor is, an, is like an honorarium. An honorarium is not a salary. It's a gift, so you should give them double money, assuming that's what honor means. Honor can also mean respect. But I think he's talking about money here. Most people do. Not necessarily, though. Here are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven translations that translate it as double honor, as does the Homo Christian Study Bible, the ESV, the NESB, the NIV, the Lexham English Bible, the ASV, the KGV, and the ERV say double honor. The Amplified says double worthy of honor and of adequate financial support. The Contemporary English Version says pay twice as much. Okay, well, we're going to assume, just for the sake of argument, to help out the paid salary people, that this is talking about money, okay? But now, is it a wage? No, it is not. First of all, Adam Clark he says that almost every critic of note allows that teammate honor, the Greek word teammate means honor, almost every critic of note allows that teammate here, teammate here signifies reward or stipend. Well... Even even if that's so, it does not necessarily mean a salary. I don't know what Clark means by a stipend. Reward would be okay. A gift is not a salary. Both are in the form of money. An honorarium is a gift. And now, of course, honorariums have degenerated into kind of a fee for a speaker. But it used to be the, the man is very honored. He's giving of his professional time. And he or she's given a speech. And it's a wonderful speech. And so then we give the speaker a gift. It's called an honorarium. It's not really a fee. But that's degenerated into a fee. But the original meaning was a gift. A salary is money owed by contract or law. You can sue for a salary, but you can't sue for a gift. If a church refused to pay a, 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 an elder his salary, he could sue the church. But if the church members just refuse to give him a gift, well, the pastor cannot sue. Now, the Thayer's lexicon's definition for TMA does not have a meaning that means salary. This first definition is this, a valuing by which a price is fixed, a value. The second and last definition says honor which is shown to one. So it's either value, but not salary, or it's honor esteem. Now, there is another word Paul could have used here that does mean pay a salary, misthos. Thayer's lexicon for misthos says dues paid for work, wages higher. Now, if it had said that out, you'd, you'd win, hands down, pay the clergy. It says so in the Bible. But Paul did not use the ordinary logical word for salary. He just said, give him honor, which give him a gift, assuming that it doesn't mean esteem. There's another word that Paul could have used, opsonion, 
Thayer's lexicon says that word means a soldier's pay, an allowance. So if he could have said wages or allowance, he could have said misthos for wages or opsonion for allowance. He didn't do it. He said time, a value. So Paul did not preach salaried clergymen. Here are some of the evils that arise from salaried leaders. Remember, Peter said, don't do it for the money. You emphasize the clergy-lady distinction. Who's getting paid? The pastor. How other people give their gifts, not the pastor. He's earning his gift because it's not a gift. It's a duty. You make the leader a slave to the congregation. If he doesn't tickle your ears, you cut his pay or you fire him. And the temptation thus becomes huge for leaders to engage in church politics. Keep people on their side so they don't lose their job because they got to feed their wife and family. Folks, if you want to be a pastor, stay away from the salary. Make your money somehow else. Don't let a church pay you. Don't become its slave. We go now to 1 Peter 5, 3. The shepherd continuing, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Now this word lording, the Greek is katakuri euontes, lording. Most translations have this authority exercised in a negative way. In English, it sounds like that, lording it over me. That means, sounds like somebody is appealing to the authority to stomp on me, to domineer me. Those have negative connotations. Now, I was curious, can the Greek word mean exercising authority just in general, not necessarily in a negative way? In other words, don't exercise authority even in a good way over those entrusted to you. I couldn't prove that from the Greek. But the Greek, the Greek doesn't necessarily say this, but the word examples says it. Don't lord it over, but be examples to the flock. Well, what's the opposite of lording over the flock? Telling them what to do in an unhealthy manner. Be examples to the flock. Now, if you're an example, you don't tell anybody what to do. You just do it. If I want to imitate some baseball player, his batting stance, the baseball player doesn't tell me what to do. I just do it because I honor him and I think he's great and I want to bat the same way he does. That's an example. And that's the kind of authority. It's the moral authority of an elder. That's the kind of authority that Peter enjoins here. Well, obviously, if you lord it over someone in a negative way, you're not, go- you're not being an example to the flock. So example to the flock is the exact opposite of lording it over someone. Now, again... somebody who says, well, a pastor has to have authority over his flock. He can't just be an example. He's got to have some ability to tell the flock what to do as a matter of command authority. Uh, No, I don't think so. You can't prove me right using this verse here, but I can go to Mark 10, 42 through 45 and prove I'm right that a pastor does not have command authority over his flock. Jesus says here, in Mark 10:42 through 45, Jesus called them over and said to them, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles dominate them, and their men of high position exercise power over them. But it must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve to give his life a ransom for many. Another passage i think is that in luke 22 it says you should be as the youngest in the household as well as a slave children and slaves have no command authority they can't tell anybody what to do the youngest person in the household is a child can he tell his older brother what to do can he tell the father what to do can he tell the mother what to do he can't tell anybody what to do likewise a slave can you see the slave telling the master of the house this is what we ought to do today boss i don't think so that's the kind of authority jesus said that leaders ought to have and the word for leaders is hegemonoi, same word that's used in Hebrew 13 when leaders are talked about. Everybody talked about obey your leaders. You can go through Hebrews 13 and show that it is not command authority that's talked about. It's talked about example authority, moral authority. Boy, I wish pastors would learn that. I refuse to go to a church that has somebody think he can tell me what to do. And then I start praying for the pastor who's trying to be an example to me. I'm doing it right now, as a matter of fact. I admire people like that, and i pray for them. But I'm not going to sit and have somebody tell me, well, you need to do this because Jesus says, Jesus has told me you need to do this. You need to treat your wife in a certain way. You need to raise your kids in a certain way. You need to tell your boss this or that. No, I'm not going to listen to that. I might take some advice. If he gives me advice, that's one thing. But if he tells me as his pastor that he that I must do it, I'll say, well, as your sheep, I'm going to go wander outside of the sheepfold. Find another sheepfold. We go now well, let's talk about this exa- this idea of leading by example. It's not just here in First Peter 5, 3. 
It's also in 2 Thessalonians 3.9. It is not that we don't have the right to support, but we did it to make ourselves an example to you so that you would imitate us. Imitate examples. That's Paul talking to the Thessalonians. He didn't work. He had the right to get supported from them, but he didn't. He worked with his own hands to be an example. He didn't tell them, you must pay me because I am the big shot apostle. He didn't do that. He just went out and worked and said, okay, I'm doing it. You do it too. That's leadership in the body of Christ. First Timothy 4.12, Paul tells Timothy, let no one despise your youth. Instead, you should be an example to the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. That's how you lead. You be an example, Timothy. Titus 2.7, make yourself an example of good works with integrity and dignity in your teaching. So there you have it. Leadership by example. I could also mention, I think it's 1 Corinthians 11. I don't have it in front of me, but Paul tells the Corinthians, says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So it means use Paul as an example and imitate him. We go to 1 Peter 5, 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will, will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now notice the chief shepherd is Jesus here. It's not the Pope. Peter, are you listening, Roman Catholics? The chief shepherd is Jesus, not the Pope. When the chief shepherd appears, now the fact that Peter called him the chief shepherd, that implies that there are under shepherds. Well, who are the under shepherds? That's any church leader, any leader slash pastor slash overseer, overseer who is shepherding a church. When the chief shepherd appears, I assume this is at the second coming, could be 8070, I don't know. I mentioned that earlier, but let's just assume it's the second coming to avoid controversy over that. When he appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Unfading is referring to the wreath that victors in the Grecian games would, would get. That wreath will wither and die. But Jesus' crown is never going to wither. It's never going to die. It won't fade away. Peter mentions this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. An inheritance that is imperishable, uncorrupted, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Unfading inheritance. Not going to go away. We go to verse 5, 1 Peter 5. In the same way, you younger men, be subject to the elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. In the same way, in the same way as what? This is my idea, probably referring to the wives, in, ver in chapter 3, where he says wives should be submissive to their husbands, he's probably referring to slaves in verse chapter 2, where he says slaves should be submissive to their masters. And so in the same way, with that submission, younger men be subject to your elders. Now the question is, is, is talking about the young men's elders in the sense that the elders are older than the young men, or is it talking about their church leaders? Well, I think it's church leaders, because that's what the whole, that's what I entitled this whole section of scripture shepherding the flocks, talking about the shepherds in the flock, the elders. So I think he's saying you younger men be subject to the elders. And I, why does Peter single out younger men? Younger men tend to be a little bit more rebellious. Think about it. You know it's true. All of you, young or old, uh, men or women, young or old, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Now notice this submission is not just young men to elders, but everybody to each other. Be humble which is another way of saying submit to one another, except you, it, I realize uh, a young person can't submit to an elder, and an elder can't submit to a young person, because that doesn't make any sense. But everybody can be humble to one another. Now, when I say subject to, that sounds like the elder has command authority, which I just finished disagreeing with. No, what it means is the younger man can't tell the elder what to do. <laughs> he, can't, he, can't be a, a, he can't be a rod in the cogs of consensus. You can't give the elder a hard time. Shouldn't do it. Now, I need to say here that word subject to is from the Greek word hupotasso, which means it's a strong form of submission, like the wife is submissive to her husband. The child is submissive to his parents. The citizen is submissive to the government. The Christian is submissive to the Lord. Hupotasso is used everywhere. This is the only place that I know of. Maybe there's one in, in, in the end of 1 Corinthians 16 where Paul talks about being submissive to the to certain people in the church at Corinth, where you see this strong idea of being submissive to the elders. Most of the time, it's be persuaded by the elders, not be submissive to them. But here, it's be submissive to the elders. And again, I think it's because he's talking about younger men who might tend to be a little bit more rebellious. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Peter is probably quoting from Proverbs 3.34. He mocks those who mock but gives grace to the humble. 
Jameson Fawcett Brown says that is where Peter's quoting from, but he, in my opinion, he could have been quoted from James 4, 6. But he gives greater grace, therefore he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. James is writing in the 40s, Peter's in the 60s, so Peter might have been quoting James. I don't know. They both could have been quoting directly from Proverbs 3, 34. So it's a, it's a nice idea. You want grace, you want unmerited favor, you might want to be humble. And folks, the deadly sin of pride is everywhere, as every Christian knows. Sooner or later, you, your pride will be exposed, and you have to humble yourself. First Peter 5, 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time. Now, Peter says, humble yourselves, and I would say that's so God doesn't have to do it, because if you don't do it, it's a, it's a, it's a tough job. Somebody's got to do it, and if you don't do it, God will do it. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time. God is so mighty, it's stupid not to be humble for him, before him. So that's why Peter says, mighty hand of God. Oh, you want to be proud? God's got a mighty hand. You want to be bigger than that? So that he may exalt you at the proper time. Now, humility comes with grace, as we just said in the previous verse. It also comes with exaltation. Luke 14:11. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, Jesus says, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Humble yourself before God. He'll, he'll make you ruler of the world. He said that in the Sermon on the Mount. The poor in spirit are going to rule the world, inherit the earth. You will be exalted at the proper time. When is that? John Gill says, well, it could be in this life or the next life. And, of course, it might be different for an individual Christian. But at some point, you will be exalted. Might, you might have to wait till you die to be exalted, but you will be. First Peter 5, 7, casting all your care on him because he cares about you. Here's some other scriptures from here's some other scriptures that point out that same idea. Philippians four six, don't worry about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, let your request be na- be made known to God. If you don't worry about anything, then you've cast it all then you have cast all your care on God. Because he's caring for you, he's taking care of you, and you're not worried about it anymore. One of the har- hardest scriptures in the Bible, I think. Of course, it depends on personality. Some people just don't worry. Other people worry all the time. Paul says in Philippians 4, 6, don't worry about anything. You don't worry about anything. Well, Jesus said the same thing in Summer on the Mount. He said, sufficient are the worries of today. And today, are you fed? Are you clothed? Then you don't need to worry about anything. That's supernatural, folks. And everything through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, let your request be known to God. And that's why you don't worry, because you pray all the time. And you you can't just go around and say, well, I'm not going to worry. I'm not going to pray either. You don't pray. You're going to worry, all right? Psalm 55:22. cast your burden on the Lord, the psalmist says, and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. Adam Clark says that's where Peter's quoting from plainly. Maybe so, maybe not. First Peter 5, 8 and 9. Be serious. Be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him and be firm in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. Be serious. Other translations say, the NIV says, self-control. The KGV and the NAV says, be sober. The Mason, the Montgomery New Testament, the Mason New Testament and the Montgomery New Testament say, be temperate, be disciplined, be self-controlled. Be alert. Your adversary, the devil. Here's another, here's another scripture talking about be uh, serious, be on the alert, 1 Thessalonians 5, 6. So then let us not be sleeping as do the rest, but let us be watchful and self-controlled. For those who are sleeping, sleep in the night, and those who are drunken are drunk in the night. In other words, if you're drunk, if you're not sober, you're not going to know what's going on around you, and somebody's going to sneak up on you and clean your clock. Likewise, if you're not serious about the schemes of the devil and trying to screw you up, well, you're going to get taken advantage of by the devil. Now, the implication here is that if you are serious and if you are alert, the devil's not going to do anything to you. And I I make that point because this verse is usually quoted to Christians in such a way that they become afraid. Just like you tell the boogeyman is going to get a little kid and pretty soon the kid gets afraid of the boogeyman. Well, likewise, the devil's going to come after you. Well, but the whole point that Peter's talking about the devil here is so you can overcome him, so that you can resist him. Your adversary, the devil, which means slanderer, by the way, that's what devil means, or accuser, the accuser of the brethren. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a rolling, roaring lion. Why is he prowling? He's on the hunt. He's looking. He's looking for a Christian who's not serious and is on the alert. If, if the lion sees somebody that's serious and alert, he's not going to attack because he knows he's going to get clobbered. He's looking for anyone he can devour. 
He's searching them out. It's not automatic. The devil doesn't automatically eat up Christians. Now, prowling about, the devil is here. Peter is referencing Job, as Adam Clark points out. We read in Job 1.7, The Lord asked Satan, Where have you come from? From roaming through the earth, Satan answered him, and walking around on it, looking for trouble. Job 2.2, The Lord asked Satan, Where have you come from? From roaming through the earth, Satan answered him, and walking around on it. Why is he roaring as he prowls? Because he's hungry, wants someone to eat. To see if he can find anyone he can devour. Now we got to rem- we must remember that the devil cannot devour Christians. Now here's some conditions that might happen that allows the devil to devour Christians if the Christian is not self-controlled and alert. Now the devil can make Christians can try to make Christians think that he can devour them by putting fear in their minds, but we know from the scriptures that the demons are very afraid of Jesus. Remember the Gadarene demoniac. What have we got to do with you, Jesus, son of God? Send us away from here. You know, they were screaming bloody murder because they were scared of him. So the demons are afraid of Jesus, and Jesus lives in us. Therefore, the demons are afraid of us. I know in China there's demons everywhere because of their pagan past, and even non-Christians are aware of demons. They've had, I talked to one guy, I had, saw his grandmother have a demon convulsion fit in a Buddhist temple. He knew all about demons. He was scared of them. His girlfriend at the time, who has since become a very dedicated Christian, she was not saved at the time. And in fact, she got saved because when I mentioned that the demons are afraid of Jesus, we don't need to be afraid of demons. She wanted that because she was scared of demons and she wanted to not be afraid of demons anymore. It was really a strange conversion. I've never seen anything quite like that. But we know that we can resist the devil now because Peter says to in verse 9, resist the devil. The question is, is how? Well, some people say, we resist the devil by being humble, because that's the context. Remember, Peter has just said in verse 6 to be humble before everybody. But And, and these people who say this go back to James 4, 7, which says, Therefore submit to God, but resist the devil. So submit to God and resisting, resisting the devil are put right next to each other, juxtapose one after the other. And so the idea is, you want to resist the devil, you submit to God. Well, I will say this. If you're going to resist the devil, yes, you do need, need to submit to God. But I don't think that's all there is to it. Some people suggest you need to put on the full armor of God to resist the devil. Turning to Ephesians 6, 11 through 16, just real briefly, I'm not going to read it. The helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. What have I left out? I can't think of what I've left out, but you know what I mean. Uh, the armor, the full armor of God the belt around your waist, and that's how you resist the devil. Well, another way you can resist the devil is resist him verbally, like Jesus and all of his apostles did when they went around casting out demons. You can say the same thing. I resist you demons in the name of Jesus. Get the Gehenna out of here. You can do that. And actually, why can't you do all three? Why can't you be humble, put on the full armor of God, and verbally resist the devil? I don't think it's either or. Now, Peter refers here, to the sufferings that are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. Now, again, he mentioned sufferings because that was high on his mind. And he's saying, yeah, the devil's going to come after you using his minions, his agents, persecuting persecuting Jews usually here, usually is who came after these early Jewish Christians. And Peter is saying, look, it's not just you. Don't think you're alone. We're all being persecuted throughout the world. And that means throughout the Roman, the Jewish world. It's cosmos. Adam Clark says, let me read you what Adam Clark says about that word, cosmos world. Quote, any man who has read the Greek Testament with any attention must have observed a vast number of places in which the word cosmos, which we translate world, means the Jewish people and the Jewish state and nothing else. So that's what I'm going to assume. If you take it as the whole world, the whole Roman world, then you can say, well, it's Gentiles as well as Jews that Peter is writing to and writing about. But I think he's, he's mainly talking to Jewish Christians. And these fellow Jewish believers are being persecuted everywhere that the Jews were. Now, why does Paul mention, Peter mention that? Because it's hard to suffer alone. It is, I guess you could say, misery loves company. When you know that other people are going through it and having it tough, then that will steal you to be tough too so that you can, pers- you can make it through the persecution. You can resist the devil and survive it. Now remember, the whole purpose of this suffering business is so that you can survive, experience glory, and survive. There's too many people that are preaching suffering, which is in the scripture, but they don't mention the glory that comes after the suffering. Well, 
Let's do that now. Verses 10 and 11, 1 Peter 5. Now the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ Jesus will personally restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered a little. There it is. Suffering and glory. Suffering and glory. The dominion belongs to him forever. Amen. The God of all grace. Why does Paul, Peter mention grace here? Because, and why does he mention glory too? He mentions grace and glory all in the same verse. Verse 10 to encourage the suffering Christians. God's grace will get them through it, and God's glory is at the end of it. Grace and glory. So whenever you mention suffering, mention grace, mention glory. This God of all grace called you to his eternal glory in Christ Jesus. He called you. John Gill makes the point this is an efficacious call, not an external call. Calvinist theologians love to distinguish the two. The whole world is called to get saved because the gospel goes out to the whole world, but only those in the elect are efficaciously called or internally called, sometimes it's, it's said. I think that's a reasonable distinction. So God has called you to his eternal glory in Christ Jesus. And as Jameson Fawcett and Brown says, whenever you see the word in, in means in union with. And I always do that. Whenever I say in, in Christ, I say in union with Christ. Because we understand what that means. In Christ Jesus is not so clear. So we are in union with Christ. Jesus suffered. He suffered on the cross. We died with him. Jesus died on the cross. Jesus rose. We identify with him. We rose too. Jesus is glorified and we are glorified. Now the timing of that is subject to God's will, but we are going to be glorified. We will receive an eternal weight of glory, the weight of which compares compared to the little bit of suffering we have now on this earth is incomparable, incomprehensible. Notice Peter mentions that the suffering is a little. Now this is talking to Jewish Christians, what we read from Hebrews 11, they hadn't suffered to the point of being killed yet, but they had their houses taken away from them. They were thrown in prison. They had their property robbed from them. They were ridiculed. Peter just says, well, okay, that's a little bit of suffering. To me, that would be a lot of suffering. But to Peter, it was just a little bit of suffering because of the glory in Christ. And if you do suffer, God's going to restore, establish, strengthen, and support you. That's good news, folks. So we need to give people good news when they're in the midst of a trial. It seems like like in so many issues there's polarization. you got the faith people, the word of faith people, the name and claim it, blab it and crab it, mark and park it, call it and haul it, scream it and redeem it, confess it and possess it people who say that you're never supposed to suffer. And if you're suffering, it's the devil doing it and you have total victory over the devil, so let's knock him out and you're not going to suffer at all. Well, that's nonsense. Peter right here has been talking about knocking out the devil, resisting the devil, but he also at the same time concedes that you are going to suffer a little bit. The faith people, the hyper-faith people won't even concede that. But on the other hand, you got people who talk about you got to suffer, you got to suffer because Jesus will teach you in the sufferings, which he will, but they emphasize that so much they don't mention the fact that you're going to get through the suffering. He's going to restore, establish, strengthen, and support you. And he's going to give you glory. And the suffering is only for a little while. That means there's an expiration date on your suffering. Now, it might seem like an eternity when you're going through it, but if ever I see somebody suffering, I'm going to quote this verse to them, too. You're going to get through it. I mean, that's so important. I had a good friend of mine who was going through a real bad time. I mean, really bad. He calls me up, and I could tell he was in despair. It was like Jesus had left him. And I was giving him the standard stuff. Now you'll be all right. We'll keep praying for you. Things will turn around. I was just giving him kind of worthless advice. And finally, I realized he was real serious. And I said, look, Job suffered. And what happened with his suffering? God ended it, and at the end, he poured out blessings on him. And my friend said, Job, Job, Job ain't got nothing on me. He thought he was suffering worse than Job, which, of course, was irrational. But, you know, that's what happens when you get into suffering. But I was trying to encourage him to say, look, it's going to be over. You will survive. And he did. He's lived a perfectly happy life ever since then. So need to remember that. Here's some other scriptures that says that we can endure any and all suffering. Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10:13, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to humanity. God is faithful, and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, he will also provide a, provide a way of escape so that you're able to bear it. Escape. Bear. That's a classic verse to quote to people who are going through trials. John 16:33. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. So Jesus said, yeah, you're going to have suffering in this world. Joel Osteen doesn't know what he's talking about. Kenneth Copeland doesn't either. Yes, that's right. You will have suffering. But, hey, I'm living in you, and I've conquered the world. Well, if I've conquered the world, the Jesus who lives in you conquers the world too. 
And notice that after you have suffered for a little while, that's when you're going to be restored, established, strengthened, and supported. This implies strongly that the Christian suffering has an expiration date. The suffering will not go on forever and ever. First Peter 5.12 I have written you this brief letter through Sylvanus. I know him to be a faithful brother to encourage you and to testify that this is the true grace of God. Take your stand in it. Sylvanus is a variant of Silas, the famous Silas that went with Paul on the second and third journeys. In fact, he doesn't show up before the second journey and he disappears after the third journey. Somehow, Peter knows him. Here's some options as to what the relationship with Peter was. He could have been the bearer of the letter to Peter's readers. He says, I've written this letter through Sylvanus. means I wrote the letter, but Sylvanus carried it. Or it could be the scribe who recorded as Peter dictated, which I think it is. Probably, NIV Study Bible mentions that as another option. And the third option is, is he's the one who polished Peter's Greek for him. Peter wrote it, and Sylvanus polished up the Greek. Peter was a fisherman. He wasn't big in the schools with the fancy Greek. The fancy Greek in Peter compared to the rough Greek in Second Peter has led some people to say that First and Second Peter are not written by the same person. But if Peter was using Sylvanus here to help him with his Greek, that would explain why the Greek in First Peter is so much better than in Second Peter. Now, Peter says he's written this brief letter to encourage you and to testify that this is the true grace of God. What this? That Jesus will restore, establish, strengthen, and support you. That's the true grace of God. He mentioned that in the previous verse, if you recall. Now the God of all grace who called you will restore, establish, strengthen, and support you. I have written you to this brief letter to testify that this, the God of all grace, the grace that will restore, strengthen, establish, and support you, this is the true grace of God. It's true in, in the sense of it's real. Take your stand in it. It's not automatic. You've got to rely on God's grace. You're not going to get through the suffering otherwise, the persecution otherwise. Here's some other scriptures about taking a stand in grace. Romans 5, 2. Paul says, We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand. We're standing in grace. We're not standing in our works. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Hope, confident expectation of the future that we're going to see glory. That's how you stand in grace, when you, and that's how you get through suffering. 1 Corinthians 15.1, Now, brothers, I want to clarify you the gospel I proclaim to you. You received it and have taken your stand on it. It's a stand not in, the, in grace directly, but stand on the gospel. Jameson Foster Brown says Peter may have had Paul's words in mind as he wrote that. Take your stand in God's grace. You don't lie down. You stand up and face what's coming. Might not be pleasant, but you have to face it. Verses 13 and 14 of 1 Peter 5, Peter continues, The church in Babylon also chosen sends you greetings, as does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Now, the church in Babylon, the churches in brackets, is not in the original manuscripts. The options is what should be there is the church, as the Homo Christian Study Bible puts, or it could be Peter's wife, which I think is a little off the wall. Well, here's uh, an argument as to why it should be the church. Peter and John were closely associated, of course. Peter, James, and John, the big three apostles, they were closely associated during Jesus' ministry. And Peter has already addressed the church in John's area, Asia, in verse 1 of the First Peter 1, when he says, Your, he says, uh, to the temporary residents dispersed in, and he gives five Asian provinces. So he starts out with John's Asian provinces, and he finishes with, the church in Babylon, wherever that is, I think it's Jerusalem. And so he's starting out addressing a church and he's finishing with the church. Well, that's a little, that's not exactly conclusive logic to prove that it's talking about a church there, but what else could it be? I mean, some people suggested Peter's wife. Peter's wife in Babylon, also chosen along with me, sends you greetings. Well, why would Peter say, my wife in Babylon sends you greetings? I don't think so. I'm thinking he's talking about the church. Now, another question is, is where's Babylon? Now, there's been a lot of speculation on that. There was a place called Babylon in Egypt, the military post. I don't think many people think Peter was writing from there. What would he be doing in Egypt? A lot of people, in fact, all three of my basic commentators, John Gill, Adam Clark, and Jameson Fawcett and Brown, say it's talking about the famous Babylon in Mesopotamia. Here's a quote from John Gill. It is best, therefore, to understand the word Babylon literally of Babylon in Assyria. Well, that means in Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia. The, metropo the metropolis of the dispersion of the Jews and the center of it to whom the apostle wrote and where as the minister of the circumcision he may be thought to reside, here being a number of persons converted. 
Well, but the problem with that idea is that Babylon, the dispersion that Peter wrote to was in Anatolia, present-day Turkey, not in Babylon, not in Mesopotamia, present-day Iraq. So that kind of cuts against the argument that Babylon is referring to Mesopotamian Babylon. So let's go to the third option as to what this Babylon is, Jerusalem, and this is the one I prefer. Babylon would be a symbol of Jerusalem. Why? Jerusalem was a place of slavery and oppression of God's people, just like the original Babylon, the 586 exile and destroy Jerusalem, Babylon, that was a place of slavery and oppression of God's people too because the Jews had to leave Jerusalem and go to Babylon. They were in exile, in slavery. Maybe slavery is too strong a word. Let's just say they were in exile. So Babylon would be a perfect symbol for what the non-believer, non-believing Jews in Jerusalem were doing to the early church, the early Jewish church. That matches the symbolism of Revelation. You recall the whore of Babylon, which I take to be Jerusalem. She's riding on the back of the sea beast because she was totally dependent on Jerusalem, uh, totally dependent on Rome. The Roman authorities governed Jerusalem at that time, if you recall. And then all of a sudden, she's riding on the back of the sea beast. She's in perfect harmony with the sea beast. And all of a sudden, the sea beast turned on the whore and devoured her and ate her up, burned her with fire, I think it says. Well, that returned. That describes what happened to the Jews in the Jewish war when they rebelled against Rome and the Jews came in and wiped them out. So I think Peter's talking about Babylon here. I'm not going to bet my life on it, but I'd bet a couple hundred dollars maybe. Other people say that this is Rome. Now, this, of course, goes to the old Catholic-Protestant debate about was Peter in Rome starting the church there. So Babylon would then be a symbol not of Jerusalem but of Rome. Now, this is what John Gill says, quote, this is an ancient opinion, so Papias understood it as Eusebius relates, but that Peter was at Rome when he wrote this epistle cannot be proved, nor any reason be given why the proper name of the place should be concealed and a figurative one expressed. So Gill doesn't believe that Rome is being referred to by Peter. Here's Jameson Fawcett and Brown, quote, how unlikely that in a friendly, situ- in a friendly salutation, the enigmatical title of Rome which is given in prophecy, he's referring to Revelation wrongly, I think. Why would James Foster Brown is, is saying this? Why would Peter use a prophetic name for Rome in his salutation? Well, I don't know. I can imagine why he might want to hide what he's writing. But I think it's more probably trying to hide what he's writing, hide it from the Jews, persecuting Jews. That's who he mainly has to deal with. After all, Peter was in, remember, he was in Jerusalem having to deal with all those persecuting Jews, and that's who he's likely going to be hiding from. Now, where does this idea come from that Peter went to Rome? Well, there's a tradition for it. I'm going to read from Gill here. Quote, the earliest distinct authority for Peter's martyrdom at Rome is Dionysius, bishop of Corinth, in the latter half of the second century. The desirableness of representing Peter and Paul, the two leading apostles, as together founding the church of the metropolis, the church of Rome, seems to have originated the tradition. Clement of Rome, often quoted for saying that Peter went to Rome, is really against it, Gill says. He mentions Paul and Peter together, but makes it as a distinguishing circumstance of Paul that he preached both in the East and West, implying that Peter never was in the West. In Second Peter 1.14, he says, I must shortly put off this tabernacle, implying his martyrdom was near, yet he makes no allusion to Rome. This is Peter doing this. Yet he, Peter, makes no allusion to Rome as he's about to put off his tabernacle, put off his body or any intention of his visiting it. So in other words, that's an argument from silence. Peter never mentions that he went to Rome. Nowhere in the scripture does it mention that Peter went to Rome. It comes from church tradition. Now, most commentators, Protestant commentators, even say that he did go to Rome just because of the strong tradition. But you can make a case that he never went. Now, of course, I know that I drive a Roman Catholic nuts, but you have to, if a Roman Catholic wants to make that argument, you can give it to him. You say, but it ain't based on the scripture, my Roman Catholic friend, based on tradition. So I don't think it's Babylon is Rome. I think it's the church in Jerusalem, which makes sense. It's Jewish Christians writing to Jewish Christians. This church here in Jerusalem sends you greetings, as does Mark, my son. Now, Mark, of course, is traditionally associated with Peter. Here he's called his son. That implies that Peter actually converted Mark. This is the same Mark that was the author of the Gospel of Mark. Early Christian tradition associates Mark closely with Peter, as the NIV Study Bible says. Many people think that Mark got his information for his gospel from Peter, and I don't doubt that for a minute. Here's some miscellaneous biographical facts about Mark. He was Barnabas' sister's son. His mother's name was Mary. Mary had a sister. That sister had a son whose name was Barnabas, so John, Mark, and Barnabas were first cousins. 
And that's why people say that Barnabas got so upset when Paul didn't want John Mark to go on the first missionary journey. And so Barnabas peeled off with Mark and they went to Cyprus instead while Paul went on the second journey. Mark is also is directly called Barnabas' cousin in Colossians 4.10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, as does Mark, Barnabas' cousin. And then in Acts 12.12, 12, we, we read this. He, Peter, went to the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many had assembled and were praying. You put all that together and you get Mary, John Mark's mother, is as a sister who was the mother of Barnabas. So now Mark is associated with Silas in Peter's esteem, 1 Peter 5.12, through Salvanus, a faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you. So Peter is associated with Silas and Mark. Silas is the one who had replaced Mark on the second journey after Mark's disagreement with Paul because Mark had had abandoned the first missionary journey. Paul didn't like that. He didn't want to take Mark on the second journey, so he got Silas instead. But now Mark has already been reconciled to Paul. We know that by reading 2 Timothy 4.11, which was written late in the 60s, Colossians also in the 60s. Only Luke is with me. Bring Mark with you. So Paul wants Mark, so he's reconciled to him. Colossians 4.10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, as does Mark. So Mark is reconciled, and Peter is writing late here in the 60s. And so, as we already know, at least we know if you listen to the audio on the first chapter of First Peter, we know. And so we know that at this late date, Mark has been reconciled with Paul, and he's also reconciled with Peter here. He's close to Peter, and so they're all one happy family. Peter's so close to Mark that he calls him his son. Now, it could be his, well, actually, there's several options. It could be his blood son, which nobody believes that. It could be his spiritual son in, in the sense that Peter had converted Mark, or it just could be so close to him he calls him his son, kind of like an adopted son. We do the same thing in English. Paul did the same thing with Timothy and Titus. 1 Timothy 1, 2, to Timothy, my true son in the faith. That sounds like Paul converted Timothy. Titus 1, 4, to Titus, my true son in our common faith. So, sounds like spiritual conversions. We can't prove it, but we can certainly suspect it. So Peter finishes off his first letter by saying, Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ with a kiss of love. That's the famous holy kiss that we read about in other places in the scriptures for example 1 Corinthians 16:20 all the brothers greet you greet one another with a holy kiss Romans 16:16 16, 16, greet one another with a holy kiss that was an ancient eastern custom it may have been used it may have been used in the synagogue well, of course with men kissing men and women kissing women it was natural that the practice would be carried over to the church especially Jewish churches which Peter is writing to here now one last point I'm going to finish the discussion of 1 Peter with discussion of a preposition one of my favorite prepositions peace to all of you who are in christ jameson fawcett brown said when you see in you can translate it as in union with peace to all of you who are in union with christ you want peace get in union with christ quit reading the news especially these days because the news is so horrible get in union with christ let him fill you up with his confidence with his hope with his glory and you will have peace ladies and gentlemen on that happy note i am finished with first peter five if you will Listen to my next audio. We're going to take up Second Peter. Hope to see you then. Hope you enjoyed this audio.